0: Testing, testing, testing. This is a podcast from Meow.net. Meow! Common Practice. A monthly podcast about the things people do. Things to do with creativity, collaboration, cultural democracy and the commons. Hello and welcome back to part two with Ana Laura Lopez de la Torre from Uruguay. Um, We are here to talk specifically about something called extension, which if you listen to the previous episode, um, is an element, a really important part of university uh, life and um, structure at the University of the Republic in Uruguay that Anna Lara, um has done a lot of work on. So we're going to t- talk a little bit about the what that means, what it is, and Laura is going to give us an example of a of a project that she's been working on under that umbrella of extension.
1: Hello, thanks for Welcome having back. me back. <laughs> yes, well, in the previous episode, I outlined that in this uh, organic law that. shape to our university, public university, it's enshrined that the university has to fulfil three functions, uh, teaching, research and extension. This was uh, the outcome of um, the revolt of students in Córdoba in 1918 and in 1958 it was passed into law in Uruguay. So when we um, joined the University. We are expected to engage in these three types of activities: teachers and students. Likewise, what happened is that this was written in the law, but there was no regulated in any uh, in any way. It was just stated that it has to be thus. So, in the period of 2006 to 2010, we had a dean called Rodrigo Rosena who had been uh, really um, quite a figure in the years before the coup d'etat, before the dictatorship. He was a student uh, leader, of the student movement. And I think when he got to the, he was a very political man, very political head. So his program as a dean was strongly um, invested in three things, interdisciplinarity, extension, and increasing the number of students from first-generation university, so whose parents haven't been to university, increasing the, the access of that uh, profile of students. Uh, so a whole um, platform for the democratization of the university. We call it the second reform, uh, referring you know referring to that first reform of 1918. And in terms of extension, for example. Um, there were some things that happened there that make it, because in reality, in the paper, the three functions are, are you know equally important, but in practice, um, research is king, teaching we have to do, because that's what we are there for, but there were anomalies like, for example, like um, professors were not teaching. The professors were just running departments and doing their own research, and going around and writing papers and going to conferences and kind of like the low-ranking teachers were doing all the teaching um, and no one did any extension <laughs> because there was no... Uh, and, and that translated, for example, in research, uh, in budget. So the, the the sectorial commissions on teaching, research and extension, research, the research commission has more funding than the other two and extension has very little money. Uh, when you have points for competition in your CV, uh, more points are attributed to research than to teaching and then to mm. extension. So there were a lot of ways in which this was uh, disqualified, extension was disqualified. So the the things that uh, uh, the governance of uh, under the leadership of Aro did was try to regulate to uh, address this inequality. And some of the things that were done were For example, make it compulsory for all careers to have mandatory credits for extension activity. So now we are getting...
0: When you say say careers, do you mean pathways or... uh, or
1: Degrees. Degrees, degrees. okay. Sorry, degrees. So we are getting into a situation now that it's um, most degrees in the university having their plans of study, some courses some some experience of extension and it's mandatory that a student cannot go through a degree in our university without having an experience of extension that is um you know it's not fully deployed for example one of my nephews has just um, graduated as a, as a pharmaceutical uh, chemist yeah. mm-hmm. and he never did any extension okay. for example But it's getting more and more uh, difficult to get away with that. Then they also make sure that every faculty has a unit, a a department of extension or a unit, an academic unit. So there is like, a you know, in the academic structure of all the faculties, there is a team that is, um, you know, there to, support, to promote yeah. and to make sure that this thing, that extension advances within the faculty. That's all funded by the Central Commission of Extension. They transfer some money to every faculty to support some staff to do that. And also it's expected that the faculty put some money into it. Too. Um, and they created this um, type of course. It's called EFI. Uh, space of Integral Training, Espacio de Formación Integral, which is a type of course that uh, you have to integrate at least two of the, two of the functions. So it's, you cannot just teach a course that is all about teaching. You have There are courses that have to have research and teaching, or extension and research, or extension and teaching, all the three of them. So there was special funding for that. And you could apply. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in, in a university that is so stretched in terms of like uh, salaries for teachers, it was an incentive, and also for younger or lower uh, rank teach teachers, because you, usually if you are you know like the lower echelons of the teaching career, uh, you will just teach the courses that you're assigned to. So well, you can make a team with your friends or people that you think alike and say, well, let's develop a course and apply for funding and we will get paid to do this. So also it was a big um, incentive to develop courses, interdisciplinary courses, because you know, these mm-hmm. FIs are units that you can um, credit mm-hmm. as elective uh, elective units or optative units. So it, it it's a very flexible pedagogical yes, um, resource for you know I don't know how to say it in English, but it allows for different uh, configurations of teaching. So I I am big on EFIS you on- yeah, I'm
0: big on FIS. I I am probably teaching too many of them. <laughs> and do you can you um, something that we perhaps didn't make the most of in the previous episode was how like the the core purpose of the university is to really kind of support and it's kind of its purpose is to serve society and I think that can you sort of give us the the strap line for that because it feels like that was really that is so important and quite different to how universities in the UK operate for example.
1: Yeah, I guess it has to do with um, the
0: particular context of Latin America, too, you know, um, whether
1: it was, it, it was brought forward by this reform in Cordoba that the students, uh, if you think at the beginning of the 20th century in Latin America, you had all these um, pro- profound inequalities, it was like the establishment of the modern state, too, with incredible um, inequalities you know, the leftover of, like, you know, years of conquest and uh, independence wars. But also we had a huge influx of uh, migration from Europe, anarchists and communists running away, you know, from repression. So there's a lot of um, political turmoil, you know, the kind of, like, massive massive, um, social movements. And this idea of that we are in a continent riddled by inequality with massive social problems um, and the university should be actively involved in solving some of those problems. So that was something that was brought into the imaginary of the public education that well this is funded by the taxpayers. Our uh, part of what we do is not just to train professionals but you know we should train professionals that give back to society or that they put this knowledge uh, at the service of solving the problems in our continent. And that is um, quite quite ingrained, it was quite ingrained Mm -hmm. in the the ethos of the public university. Uh, A lot of older people now, my older colleagues, complain that it's not so anymore that now people come to university because they want to have a title to make their you know to get ahead in life I think it's always it was always like this also for I don't know especially for like working class family if they could get one of their children into university it meant like you know social progression and that but um, but I think it's always like this but maybe like we are just in the middle of what's happened all over the world that is kind of very individualistic and everybody's out there for
0: themselves and how does that i mean i know we're going to talk about the the, the role that extension sort of serves in that um in that role of the university and how does that mission of the university also affect the kind of things that people research and the subjects and if it's starting from the problems in society and
1: well, that, that's the idea. Actually, the idea of the integrality uh, is central to that, so that we have this, it's a bit contradictory, actually, because on one side we have these three functions, but then we say that the the learning and the teaching has to be integral, so the two, the three things need to be joined together. Um, that's a bit of a contradiction there. The espacios de formación integral they go towards you know this idea of integrality to joining the functions, but in effect, they are separated because they are given like separate points in your CV for your curriculum. They are uh, there are three separate commissions that run after them, so that's something that we'll have to kind of like sort out. Um, but In a virtual circle, it should be like this, you know, through extension you uh, get involved in like the real complex problems that society experiences and that that helps determine like research topics uh, and then you can research on that. But extension, what is interesting is that extension is not just about identifying problems because it's about solving them. And to solve them, you have to research. And we use a particularly battery of research methods. So we favour participatory action research and co-research. Core um, and that's where we uh, depart from, you know, mainstream research. Um, and that's where we are weakest in terms of extension because we do this but then we are not really good at kind of documenting and systematizing and publishing mm. that because we are in the midst of the making and the doing yeah. and so that's kind of like there is something there in research in terms of that we work with methodologies research methodologies that are looked down by kind of like hard researchers mm-hmm. and at the same time because we are so much in the Mist of life as it's lived in their communities, that 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 track that that is a big traction because the demand is always there. So you do something and it's successful and people want you to do more and you get more involved with that. So this time we like to sit down and write the bloody papers. It's never there.
0: Um, write the books. that's
1: a story of our lives, isn't it? who
0: yeah. has time to yeah. write books. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but the uh, um. Can you give us, like, should we move into a specific example of I, I can, the, yeah.
1: Maybe, with, maybe I can read you the extension definition. Oh, that would be really interesting. Because after useful, these, please, many, yes. many, many, many months of discussion in the co government bodies about what is extension, um, the central directive committee of the university, which is our highest governing um, body, came to a, uh, an agreement on a definition. And I'm going to read it Great. really slowly. What is extension? It is a transformative education process where there are no stereotype roles for teachers or students, where everybody can learn and teach. And that applies, not just to teachers and students in university, but when they, uh, the definition calls for teachers and students, it also refers to um, the universe, university people and uh, people that we meet in, in, the, in the neighborhood or uh, yeah. who are, you know, in society. So it, it has a double um, meaning. It contributes to the production of new knowledge. So there's a research element in it. Links critically academic and popular knowledge. So that's quite central to extension to uh, an understanding that we produce a type of knowledge within the university that we call academic knowledge, but also there are knowledges, uh, other types of knowledge that it's in society, we call it that popular knowledge, tacit knowledge, call it whatever. But the idea that um, we, uh, the function of extension is to link those types of knowledge, but to link them critically, to allow each of the knowledges to uh, post questions and question the other knowledge. So it's not that we accept all popular knowledge, oh, that's great, because just like simple post-tradition, uh, and the same way that uh, we expect to examine that not all the knowledge that is produced within the academy is actually that uh, good or that true. It tends to promote associative and groupal forms to contribute solutions to significant social problems. So there is also something about that extension in the way that it research and try to look for solutions to the problems. It favors like to do this in associative groupal forms. so it's not the type a type of activity that would work on uh, an individual teacher or researcher carrying on a process, uh, or you know, conducting it with just like you know, I know, like a, a one person in the community. So it operates on the uh, on the collective always. It orientates research lines and education plans, so we expect that what happens in extension activities feeds back into the university and orientates uh, priorities for research and also priorities for developing new new courses or new training opportunities. It generates compromise of the university with society towards the resolution of its problems, so it appears again this thing of like, the, the, the real problems that we have in society as being like the driving force. And this is the last bit which I like very much. It says in its pedagogical dimension is a learning integral and humanizing methodology. So when we look at the extension as a pedagogy, it's a methodology, an education methodology, a learning methodology that is integral and that humanizes us that makes us more human. It's uh, just kind of like maybe like humanistic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh, tradition within the university that probably we are now kind of like questioning, uh, also, you know, like as anthropocentric. But I think the way it's phrased and how it comes there is about like this idea of um, uh, putting at the center the life at the center, you know, not kind of knowledge as some kind of rational thing, but also about like the, the, the looking after or the caring for other people so this is the definition that we have in theory there's a definition then in practice you can have things like um I've seen CVs of you know professors that in the extension section they put that they have given a talk uh, or they done an interview on television sharing their research uh, outcomes and they think that's extension so you get from like Idea of like, you know, sharing uh, your research outcomes in some kind of public platform yeah. is extension because you are sharing your wonderful knowledge with society to um, very embedded processes of many years where the university students and teachers become part of the life of a community or a sector, a productive sector, and they develop like, you know, a long-term process of co-producing knowledge. Uh, it, it goes from the, those two extremes and everything in the middle happened. And also it was how it was developed historically because the first extension experiences in our countries are quite, uh, quite nice. There was students of medicine and veterinary students where the, the ones that started to practice extension and they used to do these uh, these wonderful stories that they would get on a train that went into the countryside like stopping in lots of villages so they would just save money they would just get off in each station and give a talk in the station about, I don't know, like how to fight tuberculosis, get on the train, <laughs> get on the next station, and then people from the village would come to the station and listen to this talk. So this model of the diff- diffusionist model of, well, we got some specialist knowledge and, you know, it's our duty to make sure that people know about it because they can improve their lives. Um, that's still in place. Mm-hmm. That, that's kind of like it's called the diffusionist, the stationist model, and then... Especially from the seventies onwards, with the pedagogy of the, the the oppressed and you know this big um, push in popular education in Latin America, linked to the kind of revolutionary processes of the sixties and the seventies, that transform again the you kind know, of this mm-hmm. idea of of extension and uh, put into question the authority of uh, academic knowledge. And we have all over when I came to to Uruguay, Uh, I'm not a a, a daughter of the university, I didn't go to university myself, I just happened to teach there, so when I came, I've been teaching uh, for five years in this university, and when I arrived and I discovered that this existed, it was perfect for Mm -hmm. me, because that's how I have, I've always like practiced as an artist, Mm -hmm. so it, it felt very close to, you know, my understanding of what art. all these things that it says the definition of the extension is how I think about arts practice, and yeah. how I practice. So it was very natural for me to find my home there. And I would say that about seventy percent of what I do in my department falls within this very neatly within mm-hmm. the remote of extension.
0: So let's go into an example that you're working on at the moment. Well, um,
1: I'm going to give a little bit of political context to this project. Uh, We had in South America, especially like the South, what we call the Southern Cone, like, you know, Brazil, Argentina, Chile, Paraguay, uh, from the, the, along the 70s, starting in the end of the 60s, um, very dark period of military dictatorships that uh, basically, Came to halt the process of a revolutionary uh, uprising inspired by the Cuban Revolution. There were CIA-backed coups, uh, supported by the national oligarchy, but with uh, military training and strategic funding and all sorts of like aid from the United States and the condescendence of most European powers too. This was, um, they operated on the, well, the suppression of all forms of democracy, uh, but also on on a program of uh, extermination of what they call the subversive element. And that took different guises in the different countries, but basically the main methods were the um, kidnapping, the torture and uh, detention in clandestine detention centers, uh, execution disappear, what we call our disappear of people that were executed and their bodies were never found uh, political imprisonment exile and for example at a more general society level like um, the militarization of society and the destitution from their jobs of anybody that could be faintly thought to have any uh, you know left uh um, leftish inclination so in Uruguay the dictatorship was uh, 13 years long and we had a very different process of coming out of that than other countries I think we had probably the worst process there was a very um, connivance of the right wing with the militars to get out of the dictatorship it was like a pact made behind closed doors we say, well, you know, we'll make a transition to democracy, yeah, but we are not going to dig into that. In Argentina, they did a different process. In Argentina, they went really for it. They trialed. There was a more open process of, like, justice, seeking Uruguay, and we, we never did it. So it's, um, it's very painful. We live with that. The human rights movement in Argentina is very vigorous too. They managed to uh, open the rules of the past to trial Mm. the responsible for the human rights violation. Um, We never went that way. And we have all these people that were directly affected by it, that are still alive. They're still seeking justice. We're still looking for our disappeared. To give you a sense, the dictatorship finished in 1984, and in the year 2000 uh, was the first time that the state recognized that there were such things as disappeared. Right. They were denying. They were saying, "Oh well, no, these people like you know, left the country. They might be like living in Germany, and they just never came back to the country. Never called their families back to say that they were alive, and you know this kind of denial." Uh, we are looking in the in the last fifteen years, there was some progress. So there were, some of the bodies were found through excavations. That's kind of like the context. A very kind of like um, uh, no-go area. Lots of um, blockage for looking for truth and justice is comp- all the time. The militaries are always like controlling that process. You know, they are in charge of what. Is done or is not done. So they're like still rolling. Mm. So um, early on the year, this uh, Chilean artist that was living in Montevideo, uh, he was working with a museum of memory. It's a museum mm. that is dedicated to the kind of, like, the memory of the dictatorship and, and the resistance. He said, he was working in the museum, and he said, um, oh, can you come with some of your students to work? here because I think they, they really could do with some fresh input on how they, they deal with certain things. And we were invited to visit uh, the detention, a former clandestine detention and torture center, who is called the Trescientos Carlos, Big Hell. There was a Little Hell and Big Hell, there were two uh, facilities. The procedure was that the military would come at night into the house of people, kidnap them and bring them into these uh, kind of lay-safe like houses uh, where they could be held from days to months. And there they would be uh, subjected to torture every day, constantly and in interrogations. The methods of torture are in- inimaginable. And they are the ones that still the CIA are deploying around the world, you know, Guantanamo, Iraq, and whatever, Mm -hmm. just perfectioning them more and more. Uh, So this uh, 300 Carlos, in particular, the big hell, it's within a military facility that's still in operation. We have a national law uh, that is the sites of memory, whereby when resistance, the, the resistance identify a place that was significant in the in the history of the dictatorship. It can be where a violation of human rights happened. They can uh, put forward a case with documented what happened there. And they can get in parliament like voted that declared by the law to be a site of memory. And then a commission is made up of whoever wants to make part. Usually, it's the survivors mm-hmm. and uh, you know, civil society organizations and institutions. You make a commission and the commission works towards making that place um, uh, a site of memory, not just in the sense of like, well, it's a heritage place or something like physical, but also like activities, to promote that the memory uh, is kept alive and is discussed and uh, knowledge is produced around what happened there. So we were put in touch with the museum and with this commission at the Centro de Carlos, and basically the place is this warehouse that is in the middle of like, like I don't know, like five blocks of military facilities in the center of in the city of Montevideo. It's a huge, huge piece of land where they they had different military units there, but this warehouse where they kidnap and torture people. It's in the middle of where they do the maintenance of all the military vehicles and they keep the grenades and all the gear. It's like the service of materials and armament service. It's the warehouse number four. And it was identified by some kind of like quite almost like random uh, accident because people were taken there. Uh, with the hoods over the head, and they were all the time blindfolded. So there was very little visual recognition of the place, only maybe they could see uh, something from uh, under the hood and uh, auditory memories. But the key um, element in identifying that that was the place where they had been kidnapped was uh, that they were uh, taken up stairs to the torture chamber, and the steps, there were 17 steps. So that's how they recognized the place, mm-hmm. because when they were doing like, so they went in with the judge, and this was consistent. Mm-hmm. There were other elements too in terms of like the size and the sound and like some kind of like the, the gra- gravel mm-hmm. of the the cars that were brought in. So this staircase was quite significant in the because they were like dr- dragged up to the torture chamber. So they counted the stairs, you know, when you know, to, you know, not to lose foot. Um, the usually a site of memory, and that's how it happens in Argentina, for example, is handed over to civil society as a remembrance place. You know, so it's open to the public. You, know, you can decide how you run it, because this is within <laughs> a military facility. They decide how we have access to it. So there is a visit once a month allowed. And uh, the second Saturday of every month, and the the path into the the, uh, the place is uh, escorted by the army, so we are followed by men in uniforms with carrying guns and with an ambulance behind us. And then when we went into the warehouse, they, there is only a space where we are allowed to be. We go in with the archaeologists that conducted uh, the excavations because in the, in, one, in another part of the, that a piece of military land is where some disappearance were found. Yeah. So that you know, it's a, it's a very complicated story. But they were killed there and buried uh, next to it. So we go with the archaeologist who talks about the story of how they identify what they could be buried and the excavation process, and with one of the survivors, mm-hmm. and someone that was there for six months. It's a Rodolfo Parle, uh, an incredible man. So they tell he tells the story of how he was kidnapped and what happened there and how the, the methods of tar- torture that were used there. So the military also disposed that no pictures can taken that no recording whatsoever can be taken so it's a place that has no image in two senses one that there is no images from the time because obviously it wasn't uh, photographed Mm -hmm. but also because the people that were kidnapped there couldn't see Mm -hmm. Uh, but also it hasn't got no image now because still there is this prohibition to see in the double sense that you cannot take pictures or videos there, but also in the sense that when you go in the warehouse, they control where you can go within the warehouse. And they have made some physical modifications to the space. They build a wall in the middle. Um, that's also like something that has been found in, all, in, in other countries in Latin America, that they make physical transformations to the uh, detention, clandestine detention centers to... Obstruct uh, identification because mm-hmm. people might remember oh it was a very big space but this is not a big mm-hmm. space so it's not here so that's been documented particularly in Argentina it's architecture forensic investigations mm-hmm. find out that those strategies post dictatorship. Um, so we uh, proposed uh, so we were called upon by this commission and the museum of Hungary to help uh, create an image mm-hmm. of the place say both in terms of like well how does it actually look like but also in terms of like the the visibility in society that this is happening that there is a site of memory that is being controlled by the military which is appalling it's appalling so we propose to use the drawing as a strategy and I uh, invited my colleagues from the graphic arts department and a colleague from the uh, aesthetics department she was kidnapped as a child with her mom she was when she was three years so old she was kidnapped and this, you know she was like for a few days with her brother like moved around because the mother was taken into um, a detention center and they were just passed around until like they returned to their grandparents but she had been a, she's a direct victim of a, a state uh, violence terrorism. So we made a team and we put developed a, a program that had to do with uh, addressing this issue of the lack of vision in all its multiplicity. And it was called, it was an EFI, it was written down as an EFI, uh, called Sholobi, I saw it. So this idea of um, the testimony mm-hmm. to what it means to bear witness to something and how vision might play or not play a part in it. Also because a lot of the representations of that period, when artists tend to go into that, they tend to go into this like, very morbid thing of like you know the image of the people um, all bruised up or the tortured body, which is actually quite um, historically fairly inaccurate, for example, because by the time uh, the CIA has refined their methods, they know that blood is not good. So, you know, you have all these images like people bleeding, but uh, they call it white torture. Uh, making cuts and uh, blood was not uh, deemed effective because they get infected and then you have a problem. Mm-hmm. So, this representation of like blood, for example, to talk about torture is not even historically accurate. But also because it goes against, and I think feminist theory helped and, and um, black theory too had addressed this. When we reinstate images of oppression, what we do? We put the people in the same place. So mm-hmm. the representation of the people that have been kidnapped there as bodies, hooded, mm-hmm. torture, what you do is like fix the identity that's what they they are. They are just victims. Mm-hmm. They are just like bodies uh, torn and torture. So It's kind of like quite a a tradition in the visual representation of this period for, especially for younger generations that were not part of that, to be quite impressed by the histories of horror. So I, 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 from a theoretical point of view, I wanted to address that and say, can we represent this in a different way? Can we tell the story without placing the bodies of Mm. the victims in the same place and we move from there, and it's quite difficult. Yeah. But I think we kind of manage to do it. We uh, discussed that a lot. So when the students were coming with the little images of like people, hand, you know, with their hands tied and you know hanging from their hair or whatever, torture, metal, they were more impressed with. They say, "Well, what are you doing here? What what's happening here with this image?" Because even, like, the people that were kidnapped there, they don't want to be called victims. Mm -hmm. They say, no, we were resistance. We weren't victims. We weren't people that were resisting. And they were, like, talking about the little acts of resistance they could do in this terrible situation. So, well, we say, well, we're going to go and draw there because draw is not forbidden. So we made about 17 or 20 students enrolled. So for the whole year, every second Saturday of the month, we'll go with the visit and we'll draw. From the first visit, one thing we, we at the beginning we thought we'll go and take like some sketches and draw, you know, have this thing of like image producing in there. But what we realized very quickly was the act of drawing was what was significant, mm-hmm. not the drawing that we might produce, but the fact that we were coming in month after month and that we were observing the military because in the drawing we were observing them, we were looking at them. So we were turning the surveillance upon them and that created a lot of ripples you know they started to close upon us so at the beginning when we first came in we could move quite freely in the warehouse as soon as they realized that we were just like you know going in all nooks and crannies and that they started to build like a you know bring more military stuff and put furniture in the way so you couldn't move freely and uh, also, it was very powerful experience for us because it's kind of like visits to memory sites. Like, well, you go once, you hear the story, mm-hmm. you don't come back. You, you're you done with the experience. So there was something very strong about like, coming back. I'm coming back with Rodolfo, who is 70-something, mm-hmm. and he has to go back to that place where he suffered a lot, and he has to retell the story. So he, for example, in the last two or three visits started to... Uh, play with us and you know he he, he say okay i'm gonna i'm gonna re- say the names of the people that disappear yeah, and you're gonna chant present so now we're doing this little performance with him you know so this the coming back to become part of the team mm. that we don't leave the tour but you know we are kind of part of this group then we did some other actions too we work i work in my courses in start of courses with a, in a kind of assembly format. So, well, I set up an outline of, like, well, this is the objective, this is where we are going to, but then we'll um, work with a collective decision-making process. So I say, well, we're going to go and draw. So we go and draw, and then we come back to the classroom and say, what happened? Well, this happened. What did you notice? What are the potentials? And then we collectively decide what's the next stage. So the, the process was leading in two directions. One... There was a desire to connect to the outside, to the perimeter. So we did some postcards with some of the images that we produced, postcards, and we went out in the neighborhood to, to talk to people using those postcards mm-hmm. as a, and like open a conversation about what they knew about. If they knew what happened there in the 70s, and if they knew what happens there now, And it was incredible, it was like opening a can of worms because a lot of military people live nearby because of course when they were uh, sent to work there they might just like Mm. move locally. So we came across people that had worked there in those years and they knew what was happening and some of them said, well I never talked about this to anybody Mm. and people that didn't have a clue what was happening. So that was kind of quite a powerful thing that happened. And that opened uh, the eyes also to the site commission and the museum that there was a lot of work to be done with the memories. They've done some work on the like, remembrance mm-hmm. work with a cooperative that was next to the thing because it was very repressed too. It was a cooperative it was built in the, lead, in the leading years up to the dictatorship. So they were very repressed too. So they have done like some remembrance work. But more, um, you know, the left wing. Well, the resistance has this thing like we talk among ourselves, yeah. So, this idea of like opening and being able to talk to people that were not that, that are not on our side, exactly, in a mm-hmm. sense, that was kind of important. And then, uh, we the students made some works and we made an exhibition and they did presentations about you know how they got to that for the people that have been kidnapped there, and that was incredibly moving because it's uh, just this generation, I think that these people really need to feel that what they went through is taken in the memory of the next generations. So I was very emotional um, and how the young people reinterpret the situation you know, from a different perspective. So that was quite another area of work. And then we decided that uh, meanwhile, the site is not handed over to civil society, we are going to carry on drawing. And am going there to draw, and we're going to invite people to come and draw with us in the second visit. So we are now working on making some drawing books that are illustrated with the drawings that we already produced and with like some of the narratives that came up. We kept a collective um, journal, like field, field notes. Field notes. Yeah. So very freely, whoever wanted to write something that happened so we have about like 70 pages written in that way. And we are reissuing, and now we're working on these um, drawing books that we are going to use next year. And we, uh, At the demand of the museum, we uh, are making the exhibition into a touring exhibition and the postcards, we redesign them because there are some students of social work also from the university that are doing like workshops in secondary schools. Um, about the site, so they are using those postcards that we used in the neighborhood as a, a resource, yeah. as, a, yeah, as a starter of conversation in these workshops, and carry on with um, the conversation with the site commission, which was interesting because for, through, through the process, at the beginning, no one was kind of paying much attention to us. They thought, oh, well, you know, they can the artists. And when we opened the process and we did this presentation of the process that we have followed, the only one that really understood what was happening was uh, Rodolfo because he was was with us and he even came to class a lot of times. So he saw that this methodology of assembly decision making, which he found really um, incredible, he says very anti-authoritarian. This thing, you know, how you work with this decision collective decision making process, but most of the commission. and the survivors of the place were not part of the process. So they were like, oh, it's just like artists going and making their little paintings. When we had the sharing moment of the exhibition and each student talked about the process they had followed and how they were thinking about this and the research they done because they went and listened to the interviews. They have an, an oral the history archive of all the histories and they read extensively the the acts the judici judiciary acts and did also watch films documentaries um they were very shaken by that mm-hmm. you know they were really they really felt that there was that this transmission of the memory had happened mm-hmm. so now they are really like full of ideas and we should do this <laughs> we should do that so we are just Kind of building on that relationship so the other thing about you know this process is um, the, the the there is something important in the next session that we call the construction of demand so the, the where's the demand mm. in this case uh, the demand was not very strong the museum was happy to have someone to help you know make more visible the process that were following there but they didn't feel that we could really too much other than, I don't know, make some pictures. In the process of working this, we were um, building like the conditions to create uh, the demand. So now we have more complex demands, and the demands are coming from different places. And we also were quite um, active in generating the type of dem- a type of demand. So it's not extension is not just oh university come and help us with that, and it's not either university saying hey we can help you with that. It's a dynamic process, mm-hmm. and it's constantly being when it's done properly, it's constantly being examined and yeah. um, rethought about.
0: So. Are you, so you've done, been doing that for a year, and then you're going to continue yeah. in the next over the next year yeah. when, until whenever I guess yeah. it might continue. Yeah, well,
1: something. that's the thing. It's kind mm-hmm. of like they are open. Pro- I, I you know, you know my practice. Mm-hmm. I'm a bit like that's an artist too. Like I know when I start. I know I don't know when mm-hmm. when I' gonna finish. So we are gonna reissue the EFI next year. Get a new bunch of students in. And now we have this tool, which is this, uh, this like, some, that, yeah, this drawing book, and uh, this idea that we're gonna kind of like invite, actively invite groups of people to come and draw, and see where this takes us. Also, we started to have some exchanges with some sites of memory in Argentina that they are much better mm. <laughs> developed, especially the Esma, which is a huge, it was a huge detention and torture facility in the center of Buenos Aires, which they are really, you know, like, centuries ahead in terms of, like, you know, the public uh, public remembrance and, uh, you know, very connected to the human rights movement, you know, the so- social movements have offices and buildings within that it was taken away from the military and it's run by the civil society. So the director of ESMA came, when I visited President Carlos, she saw what we were doing and she's implementing now like drawing days at ESMA. So a lot of work can be done in terms mm-hmm. of like, developing the kind of connection with uh, Latin American experiences in that uh, and yeah, keep pushing for the side to be returned to social, to civil society. Mm-hmm. That it, this place should be ours and uh, we should have no restrict, restriction of access and the military need to get out of there. Uh, so that's the long term objective is um, that you know so we are going to draw until they give us back the bloody place
0: brilliant militant drawing um, of the military <laughs> um, shall we leave it there for this yeah. episode I feel like we've got about another 10 episodes <laughs> to do maybe I trying.
1: can I can just we got a Facebook in the, my my, tasher, my department it's called in Facebook, Taller López de la Torre, which is my surname. And you can see there are some
0: pictures there of different things that we do. We'll put the link on the show notes on okay. the podcast. Um, and, and maybe we could also include some images on the, on the website too. Um, but, yeah, thank you so much, Anna Laura, for sharing that histories, those histories and the current projects you're doing. Um, Let's keep in touch on all fronts, and hopefully we can continue with some um, further podcasts as well on cultural democracy and how all of this connects. Okay. Okay. If you
1: come to Uruguay, call us, and second Saturday of every month you can come and draw.
0: Okay. Involved. Thank you so so much. Now that you've heard the podcast, you can go to the website to find out more details, including references and links. The website's at meow.net. That's M-I-A-W dot net. See you there.